You're listening to a sermon from Red Door Church in Melbourne. For more information, go to reddoorchurch.com.au. The birth of Jesus Christ came about this way. After his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, it was discovered before they came together that she was pregnant from the Holy Spirit. So her husband Joseph, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her publicly, decided to divorce her secretly. But after he had considered these things, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, because what has been conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to name him Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins." Now all this took place to fulfil what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. See, the virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and they will name him Emmanuel, which is translated, God is with us. This is the word of the Lord. My name's Jonathan, I'm the vicar here. Great to be with you for this new season of church life. Uh, Every year for the four weeks leading up to Christmas, we look at this season of Advent. And uh, I don't know about you, but my my early memories of life run like uh, little movie clips in the back of my mind. And sometimes, like to varying degrees, they are either um, very clear, um, and, and sometimes they're kind of like really old movie clips that are very blurry. And, um, but one that I have that's very vivid is uh, as a seven-year-old in 1988, uh, I remember very clearly being at the arrivals hall in the, at the Melbourne airport, the international arrivals, because my parents had uh, left uh, the three of us boys with my grandparents and... Um, had gone to South Korea and they had gone with the express purpose of picking up my new little sister. So they had been through the very long, rigorous, drawn-out process of adopting a child from overseas, from an orphanage, and, uh, and Song Ae Ji was uh, a five-month-old from Seoul, uh, and this is the first day that she came to, uh, to live with us, to be my sister, to be my parents' daughter. And um, we, uh, I just have this very vivid memory of being in that arrivals hall. Uh, it seemed like, like as a seven-year-old, I don't know how long my parents were away for, but it, it felt like several years, right? And just n- like they were overseas. This was incredible. Um, and then when they came through the arrival doors holding this little Korean girl and I was the first one, first one to grab a hold of her and and cuddle her. And I knew just at that moment 
Uh, in fact, it never, the question never entered my mind about whether this was true or not, but I, I just knew at that moment that she was, in fact, my sister. I've never doubted it since. Advent as a season is all about arrivals. Advent is all about arrivals. In fact, the word advent, it comes from the Latin adventus, which literally means arrival or coming. And so the, the whole season of Advent is crafted so that the church every year can give their attention to two arrivals. The first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus. So now we're in a really good position this year because we've just finished 15 weeks in the book of Revelation. We've just like witnessed John's vision of the returning Lord Jesus, so it's kind of fresh in our minds. We, we don't have to do as much work when we come to Advent of sort of like prizing Advent away from the birth narrative and making it also about the second coming. That's kind of been done for us. So we're in good position this year. And what I want to do each week as we look at the great Advent themes of hope and peace and joy and love as we look at these themes, I want to do pretty much the same thing each, each week. This is like the only time you'll get like a, a predictable sermon format from me, all right? Here's what I want to do. All I want to do is look at how the first advent gives us hope or peace or joy or love, how the second advent gives us those things, and then maybe three kind of practical ways that we can cultivate hope, joy, peace, and love in in our daily experience as believers, all right? A little spoiler there, but I'm, it's going to be okay. All right, Roger, you're giving me that look, brother. Um, whew. How do you guys feel about the new uh, setup here? Yeah. It is a great Christmas tree. Thank you, Briley. Yeah. Any comments about me that you want to make? Say again. Can we get her a microphone? All right, I'm clear. Let's let's jump into it. So, this morning, looking at the the theme of hope, how does the first and second arrival, the first and second coming, the first and second advent of Jesus, establish hope? Not just, and this, is, this will be clear and evident throughout, but not just a vague kind of hope, like I hope the sun will come out later today, but a sure and certain hope. How does it do that? So to, to figure out how the first advent uh, provides hope for us here today in Caroline Springs, you've got to first put yourself in the shoes of the people of Israel. So put yourself in their shoes and you become immediately cognizant of the fact that your entire existence as a people is in some sense one of expectation, one of longing, one of yearning. Because the people of Israel knew that from creation, God walked with his people. He dwelled with his people and they knew that that was the ideal form of existence, to live in the very presence of God. And so they were seeking this 
all through every generation of, of the people of Israel, they had this sometimes prominent, sometimes in the background, but always this yearning for God to dwell with them. And he graciously made provisions so that he could, through the tabernacle, through the temple, the Holy of Holies, the sacrificial system, all of this was sort of built around this effort, largely on God's behalf, in response to this yearning that he would dwell with them. He, he sort of put together this whole superstructure wherein he could dwell with them without destroying them. Because that's what happens when a holy God lives with an unholy people. The problem was that God's presence with them in hope, in blessing, was contingent on their faithfulness to the covenant he'd made with them. It was contingent. There was great expectations on the people of Israel to live holy lives. This is the whole reason God chose them in the first place, that they would be other than all of the other peoples of the earth. And so through being other than all the other peoples, they would bless the whole world. It was a problem because the people of Israel simply could not do it. They simply could not remain faithful to God and to the covenant he made with them, they over and over and over again failed. So you have this great tension in the old covenant from cover to cover, really. The Old Testament is this tension between a yearning to be in God's presence and a wrestling with the reality of falling short of the glory of God, failing their end of the covenant. So you have Jeremiah, Jeremiah in chapter 14, the prophet Jeremiah, he kind of he gives expression to this both in confession and in yearning for something better. He says, though our iniquities testify against us, Lord, act for your namesake. Indeed, our rebellions are many. We have sinned against you. Hope of Israel, he calls God. It's saviour in times of distress. Why are you like a resident alien in the land, like a traveller stopping only for the night? Can hear the pain. God, we need you here 24-7. We need you here, present with us. We need you to dwell, but you're like, you're, you're, you're like a foreigner. That's what a resident alien is, a foreigner who comes and stays for a little while but never stays forever, a traveler stopping only for the night. God was a sojourner among his own people, but he could never stay very long. So you have in this like an acknowledgement of sin as the reason why this is the case, but also a kind of expression of disappointment in God, like for your name's sake, even if it's not for ours, for your own name's sake. Please come. Please arrive. You're our only hope. So this expectation is building all the time, right? Just building and building and building all through the major prophets and the minor prophets all the way up to Matthew. Matthew's gospel records this event. Matthew 1, 22 to 23. All this, the birth of Jesus and everything surrounding it, 
took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, see, the virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son and they will name him Emmanuel. Why? Because it means God is with us. Generations and generations of desperation, eager anticipation, yearning, longing, groaning for God to be with us, to live with us, to dwell with us, for it not to be contingent on whether we can keep covenant with him, but purely motivated by, empowered by his gracious intervention and initiative. That's what Christmas is. That's the first coming. That's God with us. This is why the first advent, Christmas, gives us hope, sure and certain hope, because the, the, the guarantee of that hope, the um, preservation of that hope, the enduring quality of that hope is not contingent on your performance. God with us is a reality. It's a present reality. God's spirit dwells within every believer. It's a guaranteed presence. I seek for God in many different ways. My favorite pursuit of God is to launch myself into nature and to soak myself in beauty. That's how I experience God in some of the most profound ways. I have the privilege of encountering him every week through studying his word. It's like my full-time job. But when I have options, when I have a day off, that's what I'm doing. I'm just immersing myself in creation and I am opening my ears to Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. So that's what I'm doing. That's what I'm seeking. But it's kind of tenuous because sometimes maybe it's a little bit dependent on the weather or maybe it's a little bit dependent on how much rest I've had or maybe it's a little bit dependent on the other stuff I need to get done and it's tenuous. Sometimes I go in, out into nature and I've had this experience. I've gone to the same place where last time I experienced this like ecstatic presence of God and then I'll go there the next time and I'm like, What's this? I've got, I've got nothing. I'm, fe- I'm not feeling anything. It's tenuous. It's beautiful. I highly recommend it to everyone. I think if you're not doing it as a believer, you're missing out. But there's no guarantee of that experience. The experience of God dwelling within my very self and therefore present with me in everything that I do is ironclad. It's guaranteed because God has done it himself. From start to finish, the initiative, the execution, the preservation, all of this is done by God 
for us. Jesus' very name, one of his names, Emmanuel, means God with us. I really like the way that there's a song that expresses this fact um, written by someone. Uh, I think it's, it's, it's on a passion, it's on the passion label, I think. And uh, this is what it says, hope has a name, Emmanuel. I love that. Hope has a name. Hope is not something off in the ether that I'm trying to grab a hold of, but every time I go to get it, it disappears. It's not vague and vacuous. Hope has a name, Emmanuel, the light of the world, who broke through the darkness. All hail the King, Emmanuel, the light of the world, the glory of heaven. Hope has a name. Hope is a person, and his spirit dwells within each one of us. First advent. Second advent. Second coming of Jesus. How does the second advent give us hope for today? Let's go to 1 Peter, chapter 1. Peter, writing to his persecuted church, says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, because of his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you. You are being guarded by God's power through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. That last time is the second coming of Jesus. It's the second arrival, the second advent. So all of this is being stored up. This inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading. The inheritance which is actually Jesus' inheritance, all that he receives as God's son, is all that we receive as God's sons and daughters. Pause for shock and awe. Co-heirs with Christ, you and I. All of that is being guarded by God's power. And the result is that we have living hope. Like, that means we know it now. This is not just something that we will get when Jesus comes back. It's something that we own. This is part of what we receive by salvation because of Jesus' resurrection. A living hope is what Christians have. That means that it is not just uh, continually being enlivened by God's Spirit, but it means it never runs out. Now, our experience of it wavers for sure, and we'll get to that in a little bit. But our experience is an evidence of the reality. The reality is that this living hope never fades. It's not a candle that gets blown out by winds of suffering or death, depression 
or anything else. It's a living hope. And notice how we can be assured of its preservation. I've said it's like a candle that doesn't blow out. How can we be assured of that? Verse 5 says, You are being guarded by what? God's power. How often do we think that all of this experience of, I don't know, hope and joy and peace and love is contingent on us doing the right thing and making sure that we have our quiet time and like we'll talk about how it's important for us to work for those things it's absolutely part of it but the securing of those things so that it can't be lost is not on you my friend hallelujah if it was up to us to grab a hold of hope and so long as we could hold on to it, we would have it. We would all be without any hope forever. Can we just admit that for a second? The point is that we're being guarded by God's power. And uh, God's never lost an arm wrestle to anyone. He's never lost his grip on anything. There's nothing powerful enough to prize his grip open. Jesus said this very explicitly, remember, in John chapter 10. He's talking about this whole, like, being a good shepherd and sheep. And he goes on, my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. So if you want to take that image literally, you've got the Father's hand and Jesus' hand, and they're both firmly grasping you. And you can dream up all kinds of enemies. Biblical, fantastical, and none of them, none of them are going to be able to prize you out of his hand. You're being guarded by God's power. Yeah, hallelujah. Guarded by God's power every moment of every day until the second arrival, the second coming. Now, I think all of that is incredibly encouraging. I know all of that very, very well. I feel like I could give a lecture on those truths some of you feel like I am. But I feel like I could go on for an hour or so just about that stuff. There's, I could add hundreds of passages to give weight to those assertions about the first and second coming. Here's the truth, though. In spite of things we espouse to be true, sometimes, maybe in some seasons, often our lived experience doesn't match up with what we know to be true. I've, that's somehow, sometimes that's how I think about sanctification, you know, God, God making us more and more like his son. Sometimes I feel like it's the, the gap between what I know and how I live or what I experience, that's the kind of gap that's being closed little by little by little by God's grace. And then the second coming happens and we all just jump right up 
to to um, to uh, perfection. So what do we do then? What do we do um, when, if we're being honest, we kind of feel like more like Jeremiah than John? Like when you can go to your father and say, I know that these things are true about you, but I'm not experiencing them. I would like to. Or even more like some of the prophets, I'm not experiencing these things and I feel like it's your fault. You're letting me down, Lord. There will be, like as soon as, as sure as night follows day, there will be seasons in your life when you struggle to live a hope-filled existence. Life is hard. And get an amen on that for sure. Life is hard. And sometimes we go through the valley of the shadow of death and for a season it feels like God's face has ceased to shine upon us. So the question I have for us is how can we cultivate, I love that word, how can we cultivate hope in the midst of the reality of life? How do we cultivate hope? I love, I love the metaphor because uh, for a few years I've cultivated a veggie patch, you know, and, and I know, I know how it works. I know that to cultivate a crop, you have to work. Especially at the beginning of the season, you've got to clear out all the junk that's got into that patch over the winter and you've got to pull out all of the weeds and you've got to probably add some you know, fresh soil and fertilizer and you've got to do a lot of preparing the ground before you even get anywhere near planting the crop, right? And, and even when you have, you've got to then maintain the conditions so that there might be watering or it might be um, pulling weeds or whatever. Like, all of it is work, but the fruit of the labor is all grace. There is nothing I can do to produce a lettuce or a chili pepper. That would be a wish I would have if I could. If, if I could just conjure a chili pepper, I would, I would, that would be my one wish. So, cultivating means putting work and effort into a project and then trusting that the fruit will come even though I can't conjure it for myself. That's the same with cultivating hope or peace, or joy, or love, it will require work. Here's a great thing that Dallas Willard once said, I'd love you to remember it and perhaps tattoo it on yourself somewhere. He said, um, not that, this just came to my mind. He said something like, um, grace 
is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. Grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. So, anything that comes to you by God's grace, like renewed hope in the midst of trying times, or salvation itself, that grace is opposed to earning. You cannot earn grace. It would be a contradiction in terms. Grace, by its very definition, is unmerited gift. But grace is not opposed to effort. You can avail yourselves of means of grace that God you know, has provided these sort of showers of grace that are like always and forever available to you, but it will probably require some work to get yourself under that waterfall of grace to mix the metaphor. Are you with me? You guys are blank today. All right. I'm, 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 I think I'm getting something from you here. Like you, do you get it? Cultivating hope is going to take some effort. And here's three ideas I've got. Three efforts that you can make that will produce nothing apart from God's grace. But I'm very confident that as you pursue these things, he will deliver. So, number one, cultivating hope. Pull that slide up, guys. I think we need to balance every fear, concern, and worry with the living hope we have in Christ. Balance every fear, concern, and worry with the living hope we have in Christ. So, what that means, what that says to me, if that's true, what that requires is like almost constant work. Just think about it, like to balance anything, very few things you can just balance and leave and it'll just stay in balance forever. Like, you, this is, this is, these are scales and fear, concern, and worry is constantly being added depending on the kind of season of life that you're in and what's going on around you. And so you have to be at work constantly balancing fear, concern, worry, anxiety, disappointment with the living hope you have in Christ. Um, I uh, did. Is John here? No, he's getting lunch for us. John came in to me this morning and uh, down in my office there, he said, How are you going? And I said, uh, I, I said something like, I'm, um, I'm grateful that. If I preach a sermon that I'm struggling to believe, it doesn't make me a hypocrite. (laughs) Um, The reason... 
So you might say, oh, the preacher was talking about this stuff and he doesn't even believe it. I guess that would be hypocrisy. I do believe it. I'm just struggling. By all means, pray. I'm going to keep talking because I've I'm my eyes on the clock. Please, but please do pray. Um, so here's here's something that just came to mind, and you remember this from I've, I've probably mentioned this like ten times in the Psalms of Summer series. There's this line from Martin Lloyd Jones, the the Welsh revivalist preacher um, of last century. He said uh, in commenting on the Psalms, he said, uh, and this is from his book, a, cl- a classic, like top. 20 book of all time called Spiritual Depression. He says, don't you know that the reason that you are spiritually depressed is because you are spending all your time listening to yourself instead of speaking to yourself. And so he goes to the psalmist who says throughout the psalms, he speaks to his soul. Psalm 42, my soul, why are you downcast? Right? He speaks to himself. Have hope in God. Um, after I met with my friend Peter Adam um, recently and, and just spent like hours talking to him about some stuff, um, he, he gave me a lot of good advice, but then he, um, he sent me a text later that day and just said, here's an idea, why don't you, why don't you talk to yourself like you would talk to somebody who came to you for the, the same problems that you have. Does that make sense? Like put, put yourself in the room opposite you and then tell that person, yourself, the things that you would tell them if it was someone else. And it's exactly the same advice, right? Like to, to be able to say, like the psalmist says, soul, I know, I, I, I have uh, recognized, I am conscious of the fact that I am, that, that the scales are being outweighed, fear, concern, worry, anxiety, depression, despair, they're being outweighed, and so soul, embrace, soak in, absorb, saturate yourself with living hope. You do that by crying out to God. The provider of hope, the guarantor of hope, the purveyor of hope, the storehouse of hope. You say, the scales are unbalanced, Lord. Please fill me, refill me, renew me with hope. I like what the author J. Kim says. This is a a quote from him. He says, uh, this is what Christian hope looks like. Ha! Some of us need to hear this. Maybe we got the wrong impression about this along the way. This is what Christian hope looks like. It doesn't ignore fear, anxiety, and doubt. It doesn't pretend they don't exist. It doesn't assert that Christians shouldn't experience them because we're meant to be more than conquerors. 
It doesn't ignore fear, anxiety, and hope. It confronts them. It holds steady, clinging to peace in the midst of chaos. Advent, he says, reminds us that Christian hope is shaped by what has happened and what is going to happen. They are shaping forces. They are, the, the, in the old days, they would say they're bulwarks, right? They are solid, shaping forces. Lord, I need you to fill me with hope. Number two is similar. Number two, when you find yourself losing hope amidst difficult seasons, ask God to renew your hope in his promises. Now, this is, uh, this is I'm going to like the desperate stage. There's the chronic stage where, that we all experience, whole seasons where we're failing to experience the, the hope that we ought to have, like resurrection, living hope. Now, what about when you're at, at, at the end of your tether? What about when you are wondering whether it might not just be better if you weren't here anymore? I have this image of us in Peter's uh, position, right? Uh, Jesus invites him to walk on the water. The water for a desert-dwelling tribe like the Israelites is like the most haunting place on earth. It's like a horror movie. It's chaos. It's darkness. It's death. And Jesus invites him to walk on the water, and he does at first. And then he starts sinking and what he, what, he, what he does before he goes under is says, Lord, save me, exclamation mark. Lord, save me. Lord, save me. It's a tragedy that some of us get to our lowest ebb and throw all of our chips on something that isn't ever going to deliver salvation. This is what desperate people do when they commit adultery or, I don't know, put it all on black at the casino or kill themselves. They're all pursuing a form of salvation. They're all pursuing a form of salvation. Peter is the example for us. He's the example for us. Even though he lacks faith, he's an example for us. Even though he doubts, he's an example for us because it's the way he responds to the situation that counts, right? We're going to be in that situation. Maybe not suicidal ideation, but some other form of despair. Lord, save me. I'd just be up front with you now since, I don't know, since we're here. I've been, I've hesitated recently to say, Lord, save me. I've hesitated to do that because I'm afraid of what happens if he doesn't. And I, I, this is what I'm afraid of. I'm afraid that I'll think less of him. So I have, I have this 
wonderful image of God as all of the things his word says he is. And so if I'm sinking beneath the waves and I cry out, Lord, save me, what if he doesn't? Then, like, what, how does that change the way I see him? I don't have a bow to tie on that little story. Yeah, that's a good. That's a good question. Yeah, what does saving mean? Well. For, I mean, for, for me, it's the same as it was for Peter, you know. Stop me from drowning. There are all kinds of ways that God saves us from our circumstances. Not all of them are the ones that we would like. Paul cries out to Jesus to save him, right? Deliver me from this thorn in the flesh, whatever that is. And God's way of saving him is to say, no. His way of saving him is to say, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Yeah. Yeah. I tell you, I, like I, I tell you a lot, like I'm, I, I write these sermons for me. All right, so that's, that's who needs to hear this. And if you guys want to keep showing up, uh, that would be great too. So, <laughs> Romans 5.5 5 is a little bit of a thread that I hang on to sometimes when, in, in these situations. He says, this, this, he's speaking of this same hope. This hope will not disappoint us because God's love has been poured in, out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So he's like, he's, he's, he's looking at this scientifically almost. He's like, there, there is objective evidence that hope won't disappoint you because God's love is present now by his Spirit in your heart. We've got to keep moving. I, I've got one more thing. Number three. Confuse everyone. Confuse everyone around you by testifying to hope even when life is horrible. This is maybe the only thing that will get through to a very hard-hearted or stiff-necked materialist. This has been my experience. You can talk all, all day about how great Jesus is, and if things are going well... It's easy for the hard-hearted person to say, well, of course you love Jesus. You've got everything you want. You can call it Jesus. I'll call it luck. Who cares? But when the suffering Christian testifies to hope in the midst of their suffering, that's very hard to dismiss. That's weird. That's confusing. This is what Peter said to his church. His church was being smashed, hammered, belted, right? His church was being persecuted. 
jailed, killed. So he says, and this is quite famous, this passage, it's not primarily about uh, being able to defend the Bible as if the Bible needed to be defended. As as Charles Spurgeon said, I don't need to defend, I need to defend the Bible like I need to defend a lion. Just let it out of its cage, right? Anyway, that's a segue. I mean, that's a a digression. Um, It's not primarily about like having the top 10 reasons why we should believe in the empty tomb or something. This is very specific. When Peter says, in your hearts, regard Christ the Lord as holy, ready at any time to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, here's why he says that. They outwardly have no reason for hope. These people are the scum of the earth. They have no power. They have no prestige. They're being persecuted. These Christians in his church have no reason for hope from the world's perspective. So he says, when, when people see you rejoicing in the midst of suffering, singing worship songs to Jesus, talking about his goodness, they're going to say, these people are insane. They're going to say, why on earth would you be so full of hope and peace and joy and love? And so Peter says, make sure you have a response. Because that question is coming. People are going to be really confused. So give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. An apologia, a, a reason, a defense. Because they're not going to Get it. It's so counterintuitive. So, this action of confusing others by testifying to God's goodness in the midst of difficulty is both a way of cultivating hope, because very often we do and then we experience, not the other way around. Very often we need to be doing something and then the experience will follow, right? So it's a way of cultivating, but it's also a fruit of the cultivation of hope that you're able to give God the glory in the midst of difficult times. We live in the shadows, my friends. We live in what C.S. Lewis called the Shadowlands. It's, it's a shadow that's cast by two great arrivals. We know of the second, we, uh, of the first, we celebrate it at Christmas. We anticipate the second. We've heard a little bit about it through the book of Revelation. We live both in light of those two things, but also in the shadow of them. So, as we walk through these shadow lands, My prayer is that God, because he's gracious, and through this season of Advent, would strengthen and cultivate our sense of hope, peace, joy, and love. Please be praying to that end. I'll pray for us now. Father, thank you so much for your grace, 
Thank you that our hope is sure and certain. Sure and certain. Not contingent on me and my feelings or my circumstances, but objective reality. Hope is anchored in your eternal plan for the salvation of your people and the restoration of all things. Hope has a name, Emmanuel, God with us. Hope arrived at the first coming and hope will arrive again never to leave the building at the second coming. Please, Lord God, draw near to us in this present darkness. Please be balancing in us every fear and worry. Please, Lord God, be ministering to us, not only directly by your spirit, but amongst us. May we be the kind of church that can administer hope to those who are without hope. May we go about the work of balancing the scales of those who are experiencing despair. Uh, Thank you, Lord, that you are really building us to be this house of prayer, this house of healing, this place of hope. Please keep doing it. Don't stop. Thank you for all that you've done and all that you're going to do. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to take some time. Stay in your seats. Listen to the words of these this song, uh, ask God for grace, commit yourself to cultivating hope this Advent season. Sometimes you need a little kind of uh, deadline, so make it Advent, make it the next four weeks leading up to Christmas, and um, get to work cultivating hope. Hope is a
This is a 